I would invite you now to bow with me once more, and let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you especially for the challenging passages of scripture. And I ask this morning that as we enter one, that by your spirit, would you illuminate your truth to us, open our hearts to receive it, and most importantly, that in receiving it, whatever way that you would have us apply this word to ourselves, that you would give us obedient hearts and the desire to do so. According to your spirit and by your will, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this morning, as we begin, I would like us to go on an imaginary archaeological expedition together. Are you ready for it? So imagine you're Indiana Jones. You've got your hat on, you've got your whip, and you're ready to go on an expedition. So now, we'll set the scene for us in this first slide. This slide is where we are going to begin our, our journey together in this dry, rugged valley. I want you to picture the sun is beating down. It's sweltering. It's hot. You're sweating. There's nowhere to hide from it. And here in this valley, we are looking for ancient artifacts, anything we can find, perhaps bones, the remains of old cities or, or villages, the broken pots of civilizations from previous centuries. Here we are in the Middle East, and it's not far from the ancient city of Ai. We've entered here this narrow canyon known today as the Wadi Kilt. It's located one mile south of the city of Jericho as the bird flies. Here we come across something quite strange in the valley bottom. Here we see something that appears to be overgrown as though it could have always been there, and yet the large mound that protrudes from the valley floor is clearly not something that nature created. It's something man-made. And after carefully beginning to excavate this site, we uncover a huge pile of rocks, rock upon rock piled upon each other. Even more odd is that these rocks appear to be scorched by fire. What do these scorched mound of rocks signify? What could it mean? More weeks of painstaking excavations follow, and along with it comes the discovery of some skeletal remains of livestock, cattle, sheep, and even a donkey is found. Then the first human skull is discovered, soon followed by more. Some of them are cracked or caved in by what appears to be blunt force trauma. Some of them are, are scorched by fire. And the question is asked, what happened here? What could this possibly mean? Were these people who were just robbed and dumped in this gully, left for dead? But why wouldn't the thieves, if they had just been robbed, why wouldn't they have taken their livestock? Why kill the livestock as well? And then comes the most incredible discovery. A solid gold wedge is uncovered, measuring some 10 inches long and weighing nearly a pound and a half. This was definitely not a robbery, for no robber would have knowingly left something so incredibly valuable behind and then buried it under a heap of rocks. No, it's clear. Something very strange happened here. Something deliberate. This was a massacre, a purge, a warning. This is indeed a place of trouble. And in Joshua chapter 7, verse 24, this place is named the Valley of Achor, 
And the term in Hebrew, achor, literally means trouble. This is the valley of trouble. Now, we, of course, remember the battle of Jericho from last week, right? Everyone remembers it. Even if you weren't here, you remember the battle for Jericho. Now, when we think about that and this great victory, this result of this tremendous faith of Joshua and the people, the walls just came a-tumbling down and Israel conquered the entire city without a single casualty. Remarkable. One of the greatest military victories of human history. Now, in comparison, the town of Ai, a few miles away from Jericho, it was just a two-bit cow town or sheep town or probably goat town because, you know, sheep, goats, and the hierarchy. Ai was nothing compared to Jericho. If we think about our location here, it would have been like Ninga to our Killarney, right? Or perhaps even Homefield. No, I won't go there. <laughs> the Homefield people are sitting in the front row. I shouldn't do that. But so think about this. They've taken the fortress city and they're thinking humanly now. AI, we only need a couple thousand people to take AI. There's hardly even any fighting men there. Remember, there were giants in Jericho, warriors. And so thinking humanly, they decide that when they attack, let's just take two or 3,000 men. And so that's what they do. They send 3,000 men to attack this two-bit goat town. And upon attacking, in a shocking turn of events, they're routed. They're routed, and the courage of the soldiers fails them. And they turn around, and they run. And in the running, men are slaughtered. 36 Israelite soldiers are killed. Remember, they didn't lose a single soldier taking Jericho, and now they've lost 36 men. And like a whipped puppy with its tail between its legs, these Israelite soldiers run. They retreat. And when the people see the soldiers running back with fear in their eyes, saying, we've been defeated, we've been routed, men are killed, the people's hearts melted within them like water. Why this defeat? Why stunning victory over a fortress city of Jericho is suddenly being routed by a two-bit town like Ai? And Joshua is perplexed. In fact, Joshua, for the first time we read anywhere in the story, is afraid. Joshua feels fear. Because what has happened? Has God left us suddenly? We took Jericho and now we are running. What could this mean? Why this defeat? Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever experienced a great victory in your Christian life? Have you ever had one of those moments where you're just like, go God, you did this, like all the glory to you, thank you so much for doing this in my life, and you have that moment where your faith is just that old mountaintop experience, right? You've probably had a moment like that. Maybe it was a moment where you were finally able to have that victory over a controlling habit, that had just been pestering you for years, and finally you put a stake in that one. It's done. Maybe you've been able to see God work in your life by finally being able to learn to control your tongue when someone criticizes you, and rather than replying insult for insult, you bit your tongue, and you're like, yes, I did it. I, I didn't go there. Maybe you've been able to conquer worry, and you've had these nagging worries, and finally you've been giving them over to the Lord. And you're finding that peace that comes along with it. 
Or perhaps you've been praying for someone to come to the Lord for a very long time, maybe even years, and finally that day came where they turned to the Lord in faith. And you just rejoice in it. What a blessing, what joy, what peace. But have you ever had it happen where after that greatest victory, spiritual victory in your Christian life, immediately after comes a roadblock, a counterattack, where Satan does everything he can to see you go from the highest mountain peak to the lowest valley in an instant. Well, this is what happened to Israel. The Israelites went from the highest euphoria of taking Jericho to now the lowest valley of being routed by the tiny town of Ai. And so here in this text, if we can learn why Israel was defeated at Ai, I think we can learn something very important of how Satan operates and learn to be on our guard against his strategies when we experience victory but then are tempted or tested immediately and set up for defeat. So let's look at the story. If you turn there with me to Joshua chapter 7, I would propose that there are two basic reasons for this shocking defeat. The first one is confidence in self rather than confidence in God. And the second is coveting and greed. So self-confidence rather than God-confidence. And secondly, coveting and greed. So if we turn there to Joshua chapter 7 and verses 2 to 4. In this next slide, it gives us a, a visual of what they will have felt like after taking Jericho. There's Joshua at the head. He's got his soldiers behind them. They are taking this land and nothing is going to stop them. And so now in verse 2 we read, Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth Avin to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up. And so now clearly, after taking Jericho, Joshua and his soldiers are feeling really good about themselves. I don't know if they beat their chests or anything like that, but we know that in the aftermath of this, of this a tremendous victory, they're high on life, they're high on themselves, nothing is going to stand in their way. But let me ask you an important question. Who really won the battle for Jericho? Who won that battle? Was it Joshua and his cunning strategy? Was it the soldiers' bravery in battle? No, it was none of those things. The Lord won the battle of Jericho when he, however he chose to do it, whether he did it with his finger, whether he did it with angels, whether he just thought and the walls came tumbling down, however the Lord did it, he took those walls down. He won the battle for Jericho. But isn't it interesting to see the variety of attacks, of attacks that Satan uses. Remember, 40 years earlier, the Israelites arrived to spy out the land of Canaan, and then they overestimated the enemy. They said, they're giants, and we're like grasshoppers in comparison. And they looked at them, and they came back, and they were afraid. They overestimated the enemy. They underestimated their God, and it led to their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Now they've made the opposite error. 
They've underestimated their, their enemy and they've overestimated their own ability. And either way, it led to failure and defeat. And so here's the practical lesson for us. Neither overestimate nor underestimate Satan and his power. Don't overestimate, but don't underestimate either. I love this great story. Martin Luther, the original reformer, the time of the Reformation. And the story goes that one night, he had a terrible dream. And he wakes up in the middle of the night, and he looks to the foot of, the, of his bed, and there he sees a, a vision, a specter, whatever you want to call it, and he realizes it's Satan who's come to test him. And seeing Satan there at the foot of his bed, Martin Luther, Martin Luther apparently looked at him and said, Oh, it's only you. And in the name of Jesus, I'm going back to sleep. And so he did, and he slept peacefully the rest of the night. That's the right attitude of when we see Satan, don't overestimate him when we are in Christ. In the name of Jesus, Martin Luther could go back to sleep. But if Martin Luther had woken up and said, I'm going to do battle with Satan, mano a mano, me versus him, who do you think would have won that encounter? Right? So don't overestimate his ability, but don't underestimate it either. It is Christ who is the difference maker. Our confidence needs to be in him. And this is the other very important lesson for us this morning. Where is your confidence placed? Where is your confidence Is it in yourself? Is it in your ability? Perhaps even the spiritual ability God has given you graciously by his spirit? In your spiritual giftings? Is your confidence in those things or is it in the one who has given you those things? Is it in your creator? Now don't get me wrong here. Confidence by itself is not bad. But misdirected confidence is. Misdirected confidence equals defeat every time. So place your confidence in God and in Christ alone every time. And so now we come to the primary reason for their defeat, and this is coveting and greed. Coveting and greed. In this next slide, you see the classic image of Achan burying the looted, forbidden things in The floor of his tent. Verse 1 says, But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. We'll get back to that in a moment. Notice that the Lord's anger did not just burn against Achan, but against Israel as a whole. We'll get back to that. Now we jump ahead to verses 20 to 21 and we we hear Achan's full confession after being flushed out when Joshua says, tell me the truth, don't lie to me. And Achan replied, verse 20, it is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. And so here we see Israel suffered a shocking defeat because of one man's sin. One man. What was his sin? Well, God had told Israel not to take for themselves any of Jericho's plunder because it was devoted for destruction. 
And the reason it was devoted for destruction, as we got into last week, because of Jericho's sin, their cup of iniquity was full. God said, I am wiping them off the face of the earth. Nothing of their legacy will endure. The only thing Israel is permitted to take was some of the gold for the temple or for the synagogue. That was all that they were allowed to take. Everything else was to be burned and destroyed. They weren't to take anything. And this was explicit and clear to everyone in Israel. So Achan knew what he was doing was against what God had said. It was a deliberate act of disobedience. And so I want you to take note of the four crucial steps in Achan's sin. Four steps. First, he says he saw. Verse 21, Achan says, When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe, I saw. It begins with the eyes. Number two, he coveted. When I saw the plunder, he even says the word, I coveted them. I saw, I coveted. Coveted, that basically means we want something that's not ours to have. We want it. And we're gonna, when we get to that point, we're thinking about ways to get it no matter what it costs. So number one, he saw. Number two, he coveted. Number three, he says it himself, and I took them. He stole He stole something that was not his to take. They belonged to the Lord. The Lord said, this is what I have devoted these things for, is destruction. He saw, he coveted, he took. And then fourthly, he tried to hide. He tried to hide what he had done by burying the loot down in the floor of his tent. Now, if this sequence of sin is sounding familiar to you, there's a good reason for that. Seeing, coveting, taking, and hiding. What does that remind you of? Think all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. Is this ringing any bells for you? What did Eve do in the garden? She saw the fruit. She saw that it was pleasing to the eye and desirable for attaining wisdom. Secondly, she coveted that for herself, knowing that God had said, don't eat from this tree, don't do it, but she coveted it because she wanted something that did not belong for her to take. Thirdly, what did she do? She went across that threshold from being tempted to acting upon the temptation. She took the fruit. She took a bite. And then what happened? She gives it to Adam. What do they do? They hide. The exact same sequence. Seeing, coveting, taking, and finally hiding away from God. And so it was with Achan. The same pattern repeating itself. He saw, he coveted, he took, and he tried to hide. And I want you to notice something else in verse 1. Notice that it says, But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regards to the devoted things. Again, God is not just holding Achan responsible, but Israel, the entire nation. And so, let's just think about that for a second. We, in Western civilization, we have a notion of very individualistic thinking. If you did something wrong, you're responsible, not anyone else. If I do something wrong, I'm the one who's responsible, not anyone else. And so if I'm one of the Israelite family members, of the 36 soldiers who were killed in attacking Ai, I would have been thinking, this is unfair. Why did my family member have to die in fighting for Ai? Because Achan sinned. My dad didn't sin. My brother didn't sin. My husband didn't sin. It was Achan. Why was my family member killed as a result? Why did Achan's sin have to lead 
to my suffering. Oh, my friends, don't miss this. This is the insidious nature of sin. It never, ever affects only the guilty. Remember, it was Adam and Eve who sinned. What do I have to do with that? Why should I suffer because Eve took and ate and hid? And yet, here we are today. All of mankind, ever since, has been suffering the consequences of their sin. Let me give you an illustration. If you take a pitcher of cold water and you pour it into hot water, what will the level or the degrees of temperature in the hot water do? If you pour cold water into the hot water, will the temperature go up or will the temperature go down? It'll go down, right? Take cold water, pour it in hot water, the whole temperature will decrease. Now, in the reverse, if you take hot water and pour it into cold water, what will happen to the temperature of the cold water? Will it go down or will it go up? It will go up, right? So, let me ask you this. What do we as individuals, what do we have an effect upon the people around us? Or, pardon me, how do we affect the people around us? As an individual, if I do something good, and no one else really knows about it, but I do something good, chances are the ripple effect towards people around me will also be good. But if I do something wrong and I sin, even if no one really knows about it, the ripple effect towards the people around me is going to be negative. And this is true in every sphere of life. In our marriages, this is true. If, if I'm harboring something that Leanne doesn't know about, it's going to affect our relationship. Even if she doesn't know what it is, it's going to be negative. The same things in our families. The same thing in our church. Either you are helping or you are hurting. Either you are raising the temperature or you are lowering, lowering the temperature spiritually. And so let me just ask you the question. Which are you doing? Are you someone who increases the temperature spiritually in this church and in your family and in your marriage and in the world around you? Or are you lowering the temperature? Because you see, Aiken was taking the temperature from the boiling point down to the frozen point. All because of his personal and individual sin, yet everyone corporately had to suffer because of it. Because you see, when tempting us, Satan will almost always plant somewhere in that temptation this lie, don't worry, this won't affect anyone else. It's just you. Proverbs 15 verse 27 confronts that lie head on. Listen to this. The greedy bring ruin to their households. Individual sin, corporate consequences. And that is exactly what Achan does. He brought ruin to his household because of his greed. There is a fable of three friends living in a poor village. And one day, one of the three friends planned to steal a bag of gold from a rich man's house in a nearby city. He's got more than enough. He won't even miss it, was the justification. And so this man proposed his plan to rob this gold to the other two friends, and the three of them immediately agreed upon the plan and further decided that they would divide the gold equally into three parts. And so they implemented the plan. They stole the gold and made good their escape. They got away with it. However, on their way back home, they got tired and hungry. And so through discussion, they sent out one of the friends to a nearby farmhouse 
to fetch some food. While he went for the food, the other two friends began talking. Wouldn't it be nice to not have to split this gold three ways, but just two? How about we jump him and kill him when he returns, and we won't have to share his gold with him, and we'll have more for ourselves. And so they agree upon the plan. But on the other hand, the third friend who had gone to get the food was thinking to himself all the while, why do I have to share this gold with the other two? I want it all for myself. I will poison the food and give it to them. And so he returns with the food mixed with poison. No sooner had he returned than the other two friends attack and kill him. They felt contented and sat down to eat. They ate and were poisoned to death, leaving lying on the ground the bag of gold unclaimed. That's greed, my friends. That is its effect. Make no mistake, coveting what isn't ours and letting greed rule our hearts is a highway to destruction for anyone it touches and to everyone left in its devastating wake. And this is why in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, the Lord Jesus confronted this issue head on and he said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Watch out. Be on your guard. And so this now leads us to the consequences of Achan's sin, the most sobering part of this entire story. In the next slide, you see what happens. Joshua says, take Achan out and his entire family, sons and daughters, Take even his livestock, his animals, all of his possessions, and stone them to death. In verses 11 to 12, the Lord had said this to Joshua. Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. And that is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have made liable to destruction. And this is the scariest line of all in this entire passage is this. The Lord says to Joshua, I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. This is serious business. God wasn't just saying, I'm just going to give you a little bit less of my power if you don't deal with this. God says, I'm going to leave you if you don't deal with this, and if you don't deal with this in the most serious manner. And Joshua takes this word to heart, and verses 24 to 26 tells us, Joshua took Achan, everything he owned, all of his family, to the valley of Achor, and there they were stoned to death, they were burned with fire, and finally a mound of rocks is piled up over the remains. Now we read this, and we find it harsh and severe. But remember, the wages of sin is death. That's not just a metaphor. The wages of sin is death. All sin is deserving of and in fact demands God's judgment. It deserves nothing less than the fire of hell. And in fact, the scripture makes clear that without grace being applied, that is where all sinners will go for eternity. Achan and his family's remains were burned with fire, and there will be a living burning of fire in eternity in hell. This is what the Lord Jesus has told us. And he is a Lord who cannot lie. 
Now, I know this is heavy, but what matters here, friends, is that this is true. This is true. And the fact is that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so, therefore, without receiving grace, the only thing left is the fearful expectation of fiery judgment. And so the question is begging at this point. Where is the hope? Where is the hope in this dark and sobering account of Achan? Where is the hope? Well, it begins in a passage tucked away in Hosea chapter 2. For there God is giving wayward Israel a word of warning of coming punishment for their idolatry, but then he follows this word of warning with a word of hope for future restoration. And I want you to listen to what God says to Israel in Hosea chapter 2, verse 15. He says, There I will give her back her vineyards, and I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. The valley of Achor a door of hope. Don't miss this. The valley of Achor, from the time of Joshua, stood as a sober warning to Israel for the judgment on sin. Don't take it lightly, friends. This is what it leads to. It stood as a constant reminder to Israel. But now, through Hosea, God declares, I will make the valley of Achor, that place of trouble and judgment, I will make it a door of hope. How? How is this possible? How can God transform a place of judgment and death into a place of hope? Well, he did it by means of another place of judgment and death. On a hill called Golgotha, a place where Roman crucifixion condemned men to the most horrific death devised by men. And a place where God's holy wrath All of his fiery anger against sin was poured out on that hill upon a specific cross, upon a specific sacrifice. All of his wrath for all of time was focused on that one cross, on that one hill. But friends, the most important thing is it was not upon us. It was upon his own son. Jesus took the stones meant for us. We deserve to be in the center of that angry mob being stoned to death. Jesus took the stones for us. Jesus took the nails for us. He took the, the, the very death that our sins demanded. And he died in our place on that cross. And therefore judgment and the wrath of God was satisfied. Because of the perfect sacrifice of his willing son. And like with Israel, God then turned from his fierce anger towards our sin, and we are now free and able to enter into a full relationship with him as his child. There's another picture I want to close with today. And this is taken along the same valley of Achor. It's a little bit further down. The Wadi Kilt. And this built into the side of the canyon wall is the St. George Monastery. And it was built around 500 AD and has ever since been devoted as a place to reflect upon the Lord's great salvation provided through Jesus Christ. And so here, in both a spiritual and physical way, Jesus has transformed the Valley of Achor into a door of hope. Isn't that just cool? 
The very place that was sobering and a place of death and judgment is now a door of hope. And in response, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5 to declares, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. My friends, how incredible is this? How amazing is this? How merciful is our God? How loving is our God? And so now having received this grace, my friends, how should we seek to respond? How should we live our lives? Is it all right to still bury some old sinful habits in the floor of our tent? Is that all right? Well, to that, the Apostle Paul would respond, God forbid, how are we who have died to sin live in it any longer? And then in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, he writes, Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. And so, my friends, today God's word is crystal clear. Get rid of coveting and greed and any other sin in your life. Confess it to him. Thank him for his gracious forgiveness through his son. And then depend on the strength of his Holy Spirit to walk in that freedom. For today, my friends, because of Jesus, mercy has triumphed over judgment. For through the cross of Christ, our valley of Achor has truly become a door of hope. Amen. Lord Jesus, we give you all glory and praise that you are willing to be that perfect sacrifice to stand in our place, to take the stones that were meant for us, the nails that were meant for us, the judgment, the wrath of your Father. And you said, I will take it all upon myself so that they don't have to, and they can come into a relationship with you. Thank you, Jesus. And Father, we thank you that you devised this plan out of your heart of love, that though our sin angers you like nothing else, your love was greater and said, yet I will make a way that they can be with me forever. And you did. Thank you. And so, Father, today I pray again, That as we view sin in our own lives, help us to not take a low view towards it or to take it trivially, but instead view it the way you do, as something that has no place in your children, that we would purge it from our lives out of reverence for you. And by the purifying work of your word and the work of your spirit, you are able to do this as we yield ourselves to you. And so we do that this morning. And we ask, Lord, that we would leave here changed because of you. In Jesus' name. Amen.